Well, good morning to everyone. How y'all doing? Did you survive Snowpocalypse 2019? I'm good to see everyone here. I wasn't sure after about midday yesterday how many people were able to come today. But let's just say thank you to the Lord for those who spent their entire night last night clearing off the roads, enabling us to gather as a church. I'm so thankful that we live in a country where uh, that's the case. And um, I'm not having to um, walk in knee-deep snow to get to church. Um, but uh, I'm thankful to see everyone. I'm grateful to see everyone. I hope you're doing well. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is, again, my honor and privilege to invite you to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the chair in front of you. It's hardback and black. And uh, we're looking for the book of Jude. The book of Jude. So the Jude is the second to last book of the Bible, so find the last book in your Bible, the one with all the dragons and angels and stuff, and hang a left. When you see dragons and angels, hang a left and you will find the one-page letter from Jude. Jude. So if you're not familiar with the Bible and those instructions were not enough for you, that's page 1027 of the church Bible. 1027. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read from verse 16. Down to the end of the letter, but this morning we're going to spend our time together focusing on verses 20 and 21. But uh, in the interest of setting up a context, let's uh, sort of jump into that. So this is part two of a six-part series that we're doing called Anatomy of a Christian. We don't do many topical series here as you no, but Pastor Brent and I felt that it would be useful, helpful, hopefully fruitful for us to spend some time together looking at what it means to follow Jesus. What is it, what is the sort of, uh, so what is the anatomical structure of the Christian life? And uh, last week we looked at the gospel, which we would consider to be the backbone, sort of the skeletal system of the Christian life. And today we're going to spend some time looking at prayer, which we're likening to the respiratory system of the Christian life. So let's read verses 17 down to 25 and uh, pray, and then we'll get to, s- get to work together in this passage. This is the word of the Lord. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time 
and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we read in the Bible often of you speaking to your people. We understand, Lord, that when we open the Bible, when we read the Bible, you're still doing that, speaking to us. So we ask that you would give us ears that we might hear what you're saying. Pray that you would clear our minds of distractions, things that we're thinking about, the roadways on the way home, the driveway that might need shoveling again, lunch plans, and enable us to focus on what it is that you would have us hear from your word so that we would be changed, so that our joys would be deepened, so that our understandings of God would be enlarged, and that our obedience to God will be strengthened. Do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's five minutes before your big presentation. You're confident in the material, but you're nervous. You don't like giving public speeches. And there's a lot on the line with this presentation. You're staring at yourself in the mirror, and your mind is racing. What if I lose my train of thought? What if my notes get out of order? What if no one likes my demonstration and we lose the account? What if I fail? What if I vomit on everyone in the front row? You're feeling anxious. Your hands are starting to shake. Beads of sweat appear on your forehead. There are stains in your armpits even though you're wearing four layers. You feel hot. Then you feel cold. Then you feel hot again. You're taking quick, short breaths. Your heart is racing. You're seeing stars. You're feeling lightheaded. All you want to do is run, but you know that if you did, you would lose your balance and fall. What's happening? You're hyperventilating. Though you're taking, though you're taking quick, fast breaths, it feels like you're not getting enough air. Well, it may feel like you're not getting enough oxygen. Actually, those symptoms have more to do with poor exhaling. When we think of breathing, we usually think of taking in oxygen. But equally important to inhaling is exhaling, the releasing of carbon dioxide. When we're hyperventilating, more carbon dioxide is being exhaled from the lungs and less is available for our body. And so our CO2 levels drop. That's why one way to stop hyperventilating is to take a paper bag and breathe in and out of it. The balance between oxygen and carbon dioxide in your body is very important. So your diaphragm contracts and draws air into your lungs, which your body uses, uses the oxygen, and then the diaphragm relaxes and the body expels the unneeded CO2. It's a careful balance. Healthy breathing in and breathing out is essential to that balance and necessary to life. Well, that is about as much as I know of the respiratory system. If you want to know anything more, you can ask Dr. Ethan or one of the nurses um, or literally anyone else in this church. I'll stay in my lane. But here's the metaphor for inhaling and exhaling. Reading the Bible is sort of like breathing in 
taking in the clean oxygen that we need for life. And breathing out is a little bit like prayer, expressing what what is here back to God. Our thoughts, our fears, our concerns, confessions of our sins before God. We need to do both in the same way that we need to breathe in God's word every day. We also need to breathe out our prayers back to him. Christians need the Bible and prayer to live. This is what Jude is showing us here in the last couple of paragraphs in his letter. I'm eager to get there, but before we do, before we dig into verses 20 and 21, I first want to define what we mean by prayer. Simply put, prayer is communication with God, both individual and corporate. Prayer is communication with God. Unger's Bible Dictionary defines prayer as the principal means men use to give expression of their attitude toward God. More precisely, prayer is asking God to deliver on His promises. So when we pray, we're not asking God to change his mind about something. We're asking him to make good on his sovereign purposes in the earth. So oftentimes, Bible teachers will take prayer and they'll categorize prayer into four categories using the acronym ACTS, ACTS. So first, they're prayers of adoration. So Brent had mentioned prayers of adoration earlier where we give praise to God for who He is and what He has done. C, there are prayers of confession, where we confess our sin to the Lord. We acknowledge our need of Him. A-C-T, thanksgiving. Prayers of thanksgiving, where we recognize that apart from God, we have nothing, and we rely on Him for all things. And as we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness, we thank Him for offering us mercy. A-C-T-S, supplication. Where we request things of God for ourselves or for others. Prayers of intercession, we fall into that category. So there are many ways to pray. And in many ways, prayer brackets the entire Bible. Prayer is woven throughout the Bible. So the Bible opens up and four chapters in, we see a corporate prayer where people are calling on the name of the Lord. We see people Abraham pray, we see Isaac and Jacob, we see all of the church fathers praying, we see kings praying, we see priests praying. In fact, there's an entire prayer book turned into song. It's the longest one in the entire Bible. The Bible itself ends with people praying. In a couple of the last verses in the entire Bible, you have God's people praying, come Lord Jesus. So in many ways, prayer opens the Bible and closes the Bible and is woven throughout. God's people are a people of prayer. And this is because we know that God is a personal God who hears the prayer of his people. Prayer is a way for us to look away from our circumstances and to look up to God for answers. Prayer is a way for us to ask God to bring sense into the nonsense, to bring healing to the wound. It's a way to look to the one who brings answers to confusion, who brings peace into frustration. We pray because of who God is. 
We pray to God as Father because He is a Father. And like any father, delights in hearing his children speak. Prayer, like Bible reading, is essential to the Christian life. And Jude tells us it's one of two things the Lord uses to keep his people persevering in Christ. It's it's the way we keep ourselves in the love of God, to use Jude's phrase. So there in Jude 17 through 25, we're going to focus in a little bit on verses 20 and 21. And, and as you're kind of settling into that passage, just to set up what Jude is about, the, the little letter of Jude is really about perseverance. It's about the ways in which God keeps his people secure in his son throughout their life. So it's about endurance. It's about keeping on, keeping on, in Christ. And so this is why if you go back to verse 1, he opens his letter by saying, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Some of your Bible translations read kept by Jesus Christ. Some of them read kept for Jesus Christ. The Greek structure there allows for both. For example, if you skip that same word, you can skip all the way down to verse 24, and you can see that same word in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jude is encouraging his readers to endure the difficulties of following Jesus, showing that it is by God's own power that they're being kept from giving up. By God's own power, they're being kept from falling away. Because following following Jesus is difficult. Following Jesus is hard. Our faith is under assault everywhere. Your faith is under assault from the world. Your faith is under assault from the enemy of God. Your faith is under under assault from false teaching. And your faith is under assault from your own sin. Requires a Christian to contend for the faith once delivered to all the saints, as he says in verse 3. This letter is how God is keeping his people persevering. But it also shows that it's not only God doing that, God is doing that through us. So you see this in verse 21 keep yourselves in the love of God. God keeps us, we are being kept, and we keep ourselves. These two things work in tandem, all by the power of God. So it's not like you say, when you became a Christian, you said, Lord Jesus, save me, and then retired to your couch to eat tacos and watch reruns of The Office until Jesus comes back. The Bible teaches that we must fight the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6, 12. That we must put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8, 13. That we must present our bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1. That is those who endure to the end who will be saved, Matthew 10, 22. That every single day we must deny ourselves, pick up a cross and follow Jesus, Matthew 16, 24. So last week we saw that very thing in 1 Corinthians 15, if you remember. Paul says that we're being saved by the gospel 
if we hold fast to the word. We are being saved as we hold on. We hold on by God's power to hold on. That's why Paul writes like he does in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're working. God is working. All by God's own power. Put it another way, God is using specific means, certain means, and infusing those means with his power to keep you, to hold you in Christ. And so this is what we see in verses 20 and 21. These are the means God is using to keep his people safe in his son, the word of God and prayer. The word of God and prayer. Let's take a closer look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. To keep yourselves in the love of God, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. By faith, in verse 20, Jude means the truth of the gospel delivered to us through the apostles. That's what he means by faith. We know this because in verse 3, back in verse 3, that's how he uses the word faith. So I take this to mean that Jude is saying we build ourselves up in this most holy faith by reminding ourselves of the gospel. So this is sort of what we talked about last week. We apply the gospel to every situation in our life. We apply the gospel to our lives every day we live. Believers keep themselves in the love of God by reminding themselves of the highest demonstration of the love of God, namely the gospel, the life, death, substitutionary atonement of Jesus and his resurrection. So we keep ourselves in the love of God by reminding ourselves of the love of God, the gospel. If you want to know more about how that works, you can re-listen to the sermon from last week. Or you can grab one of those little orange books in the foyer. It's a little book called uh, uh, The The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. I recommend it to you all. Uh, You're welcome to take any one of those books on that shelf. Remember, those books are not free. I mean, they're free in terms of dollars and cents. But when you take one of those books, you have to read it. The cost is that you have to read it with another person. So take that little orange book out there, invite a friend, read that book together encourage one another in how to apply the gospel in your life and then let us know what you learned. The first way God keeps us in the love of God, keeps us persevering in his son, is that he gives us grace to remind ourselves of the gospel every day. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And the second way Jude says that God keeps us is by praying in the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. So some of the folks who read this passage take praying in the Holy Spirit to mean praying in tongues. I don't think that's what Jude means. There's a number of reasons for this, but Paul uses the same phrase in the Spirit in Ephesians 6.18 when he says, praying at all times in the Spirit. 
So if by praying in the Holy Spirit means speaking in tongues, then how are we expected to be doing that at all times? Besides that, the Bible uses the phrase in the Spirit for many things, many behaviors, many activities. Uh, The Bible speaks of rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. Speaks of making decisions in the Holy Spirit. Having your conscience bear witness to something in the Spirit. So doing something in the Spirit means to have a conscious awareness of the presence and power of God. To do something in the Spirit means to have a conscious awareness of the presence and power of God. So praying in the Spirit means to be consciously aware that God's Holy Spirit is in us and He is involved with us as we pray. That's what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. And that kind of keys us in on something amazing about prayer. Did you know that when you pray, the entire Godhead is involved with you as you pray? The entire Godhead. You are praying your words to God the Father. The way you're doing that is through access that's been given to you by God the Son. And who is carrying you along in that and guiding that prayer is God the Holy Spirit. The entire Trinity is involved when you close your eyes and pray. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 8.26. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. To pray in the Spirit means to speak to God the Father through God the Son, knowing that God the Holy Spirit is with us, guiding us, helping us. So let me state this again. We pray because God hears We pray because God is a person. Our God is a personal God. He's a relational God. And his personal relational nature is the very basis for prayer. We know that when we pray, God hears. So we pray to keep ourselves in the love of God. Bible scholar Tom Schreiner explains it well when he writes, Love for God cannot be sustained without a relationship with Him. And such a relationship is nurtured by prayer. So put this all together. This world is messed up. It's a dangerous place to be a Christian. There's assaults coming at our faith from every direction. The world, the enemy of God, false teachers, our very own sins threaten and call into question the validity of the gospel such that many people who believe themselves to be Christians are led away and they plunge headfirst into eternal destruction. But God keeps his people persevering until the very end. And the way he does this one is by building them up with his word, confirming the promises of his word, and secondly, through praying in the Holy Spirit. It's really just about those two things. The Word of God and prayer. That's why I have said from this, from behind this desk a few times that, you know, it's likely, very likely, Pastor Brent and I are going to mess a lot of things up 
as we humbly, sacrificially, hopefully, seek to lead you by God's grace as he enables us, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to lead it in the wrong direction. We're going to move too fast at one time, too slow at another. But we're committed to doing two things well, as much as we are able. Committing ourselves to this word and to praying. The word of God in prayer. If we mess everything else up and we get that right, we may only have two or three people left, but I consider that a success. For the Christian, the word of God in prayer ought to be woven throughout our life. It's like inhaling and exhaling. Breathing in God's breathed out word and exhaling in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Well, that's what prayer is. That's what prayer does. So the next question we need to ask is, how do we pray? How do we pray? So if you're following on the backside of your worship guide, that's where we are. How to pray. And I could teach you how to pray, but I think I'd much rather have the Lord Jesus teach you how to pray. So if you have a Bible open still, please turn it to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, that's page 811 in the church Bible. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 5 to 13. This is right in the middle of what we might call the Sermon on the Mount. One of the greatest, probably the greatest sermon ever preached. And this little passage we're about to read, some of it's going to be very familiar to you because it's what many of us have come to know as the Lord's Prayer, right? Which I think is kind of mislabeled. Um, I think a better title might be the model prayer because that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. In any case, this passage is wonderful. The Lord Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And this passage, we're definitely not going to explore it and do it any justice, really. We're just looking about how we pray this particular passage deserves an entire sermon series on its own. So read verses 5 down to 13 as as we seek the Lord about how to pray. Verse 5, and when you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they, they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then, Like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So as I said, this little passage here deserves, it's an an entire sermon series. We don't have time for that this morning. 
Um, so I'm just going to draw out five quick observations. Five quick observations from the Lord's teaching on prayer. First, first observation. Jesus assumes we pray. Did you notice that? Twice, he says, when you pray. Not if you pray, but when you pray. Jesus assumes prayer. He does the same thing when he talks about giving, as Matt was speaking about earlier. Uh, He does the same thing when he's talking about fasting. You see, prayer, giving, fasting, church attendance, these are not best practices for some Christians. This is assumed of all Christians. It's not like the best Christians pray. All Christians pray. I love this quote from the great Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane. He famously said this, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Jesus assumes we pray. Jesus prayed. Luke 5.16 says that he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So look, if there's any reason to pray, that's the reason to pray. If God, wrapped in flesh, felt it was important to set aside times in his life to pray, how much more so should we pray? Jesus purposefully set aside private times to pray. That's my first observation. All Christians pray. My second observation from this passage is this. Prayer ought to be intentional. Prayer is intentional. You see this in verse 6. Jesus says, when you pray, go to your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Notice there's an intentionality here. There's a, a purposefulness in prayer. Make a plan to pray. I know that some of you set aside certain times of the day in which you pray. I think that's a great practice. Some of you have found it useful to keep a prayer journal, another great practice. During member gatherings, we hand out the membership role and we go through every name and we take prayer requests from people. And then we encourage the members to take those lists and to pray through them, to pray for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. I know some of you keep that list in the back of your Bible. I love that. Some of you keep that list on your phone and you sort of just every day work through that list, one or two families at a time, praying for your church family. Personally, I have, it is an immense comfort of mine to know that my church prays for me. Third observation. Prayers are not incantations. Prayers are not incantations. So you notice here that Jesus condemns long-wrote prayers that mean nothing. He says, don't heap up empty phrases for yourself. There's no magical formula. It's not like God won't answer your prayer until you use the right words. Prayer is not magic. Christians don't get wands and you are not Harry Potter. These are not incantations. You're speaking to a person, not an impersonal force. 
And so you speak to that person as you would any other kind of person. It's just that that person is all-powerful and sovereign over your life. So certainly there's going to be some level of honorance and deference and reverence. But that person is a person. On the flip side of that, there are some weird ideas out there that prayer is only meaningful when it's off the cuff and impromptu, extemporaneous. I'm not really sure where that came from. In fact, I actually encourage the brothers who often lead us in in congregational prayers to prepare beforehand what they're going to say. I've even encouraged them to write out their prayers and to pray them, as long as it doesn't sound like you're reading a script, but you're actually praying. Just understand that when these brothers are standing here and leading us in a congregational prayer, they're teaching us. They're teaching us how to pray. There's been a few times in, in conversations with some of you, I've told you if, you, if you're struggling to pray, if you're not sure exactly how to pray or what to pray, listen. Listen on Sunday mornings when you hear these brothers leading us in prayer. Listen to how they phrase things or what's priority in prayer. Besides, when you read through the New Testament, you realize that Paul wrote out his prayers, didn't he? Paul wrote what he was praying for other churches. Prayer doesn't lose its meaning because it's written out or because it's planned. Would your spouse feel slighted if you wrote something down and then read it to them? Prayer is not twisting God's arm either. Look what Jesus says in verse 8. Your father knows what you need before you ask. You see, we're not praying for an impersonal force or you have to use an incantation to kind of get some magical formula together to get this impersonal force to act on your behalf. Prayer is to a person and your father knows what you need even before you ask. Remember, he is a father. Prayer is not annoying God with your whiny voice and your puny problems and you badger him long enough, eventually he gets tired of hearing from you and so he answers. Some of you may treat your kids like that, but your God doesn't treat you like that. He doesn't grow tired of hearing your voice. He is a loving father who is eager for his children to come to him in their time of need. Fourth observation. Notice in the model prayer, there is no first person singular. I mean, look at it up there. You won't find the word I or me or mine or my. When the Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he teaches them to pray in the plural. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our debts As we forgive our debtors, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. This is communal language. Which is so strange for us to hear as Americans. Most of our prayers don't sound anything like that at all. Most of our prayers are like, My Father, give me my daily bread. Forgive me of my trespasses. Be with me as I do this thing. Strengthen me to do this thing. 
And listen, there's nothing wrong with praying personal prayers. But one thing that every Christian in this room will need to work against every day in their lives is this obsession we have with individualism. Maybe it's an American thing, maybe it's not, I don't know, but we think almost exclusively in terms of I and me. It is my faith. It's mine. I have an individual personal relationship with my God. But Jesus is teaching us to pray by emphasizing that we are a part of a people. God is not just my father. God is our father. My needs are not my needs. They're our needs. If, you have a, if you're a Christian, you have no choice here. Your needs are our needs. Your pain is our pain. Your reason for rejoicing is our reason for rejoicing. Look, you can push against that all you want, but it doesn't change anything. When one of you is struggling, we are all struggling. So we don't press on and let the weak fall behind. We slow down. We take care of the weak. We bear up the weak. We lock arms with one another. This faith is not yours but ours. Whatever fills your mouth in prayer, Cornerstone, do yourself a tremendous good. Learn from your Savior here and keep one eye always on the collective needs of your church body. Fifth observation. Our chief prayer is that God's reputation would be revered. Our chief prayer is that God's reputation would be revered. Jesus says right away, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I used to think that was a praise. I used to think that Jesus is saying that God's name is holy. Praise God's holy name. Well, that's true. God's name is holy. We ought to praise his holy name. But in the, in the original language, it's lost in English. But if you look it up in the original language, you find this is not adoration. This is appeal. This is a prayer. Hallowed be your name. He's saying, God, make your name great. That's the foundation. That's the chief prayer of all that we pray. That God's name would be made great. Hallowed be your name is such a common phrase in church circles. We've almost lost a sense of what it actually means. Hallowed here means to make a holy. To be set apart. To be different from. Jesus is praying that God would demonstrate his holiness. His glory to the world. Hallowing your name means showing your true self. God, show, show everyone who you truly are. So when we say that someone has a good name, what do we mean? We mean that they have a good reputation. Jesus is asking God to move in such a way that his true self is revealed and revered. His glory is seen and he is esteemed as he rightly deserves. 
Jesus is teaching us that the primary purpose of our prayer, the foundation of all that follows, is that God would be revered, that God would be treasured, that God would be given the esteem that he deserves. All the other requests spring out of that. So we pray, God, we want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. Why? So that your name is hallowed. We want, we want daily bread. We want to be provided for. We need you. Why? So that God will be glorified. We confess our sins. Forgive us of our trespasses so that God would be glorified. Enable us to forgive others of the sins that they've committed against us. Why? So that God would be glorified. Praying for deliverance from evil is for the same reason, so that God would be glorified. All prayer is grounded in God being glorified in all things. So those are my five observations. Prayer is to be assumed, just a normal part of the Christian life. Prayer ought to be intentional. You should set aside times to pray. Prayer is not an incantation. You are not heard more because you're loud. Have you ever met any of those Christians? Or when they pray, you know, they get the deep voice and they slow down their speech as if God needs to hear like that. You're not heard for the intonation. You're heard from your heart. So prayer isn't, isn't a magical formula. For prayer is communal. Prayer involves all of us. It is for all of us. That when you go to the Lord in prayer, we often error when we go to prayer only for ourselves and for the things that we need for our day. After all, God's promises are not just to us. They're to all of us. They're meant to come to us and flow through us for the good of others. And then the fifth observation is that all prayer is for God's glory in all things. By the end of today, you will have breathed in and out something like 20 to 30,000 times. Breathing is what keeps you alive. Spiritually, it's the same thing. Essential to your spiritual life is breathing in the clean, life-giving oxygen of God's Word and breathing out God-dependent prayers and petitions. Prayer is as natural an expression of your, fra- your faith as breathing is of your life. This is the respiratory system of the Christian life. Before I wrap up, I want to finish with a word of encouragement. Because um, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been in a lot of church services in my life and um, heard prayer preached on a number of times. Inevitably, every time you come away thinking, you kidding me? I am the worst Christian in the world. I never pray. And I just want to dispel that. I've been a Christian my whole life. I've met a lot of Christians. I've never met one of them who has said to me, Jamie, you know what? You know, I think I'm done praying. Like I've reached the limit of mastered praying, like I've got a doctorate in prayer. I'm the best prayer I know. There's not a single Christian I've ever met, ever talked to that says that they pray enough or they pray well enough. 
This is something we all grow in and need to continue growing in. But please be careful to not allow guilt to settle over your heart regarding prayer. Don't feel condemned by God just because you don't pray enough. Just remember what prayer is. It's communicating with a loving Father who is eager to hear your voice. Consider praying to be a privilege. Those who are in relationship with the God of the universe. And enjoy yourself while you do it. But you've got to keep in your mind that you're, you're speaking to God. You're speaking to a person. A real person who hears you. Set aside times to pray. Take 15 minutes maybe. 30 minutes, an hour. And combine, here's, here's something that someone suggested to me a long, long time ago. Combine Bible reading with prayer. I don't know why we separate those things so much like we do, like I have my time of Bible reading, I have my time of prayer, and those things are not the same. You can combine them. You're allowed to do that. As you read the Bible, pray. There are many prayers written out in the Bible. As you're reading through the epistles, often you'll hear the apostle praying. Pray those same prayers. You can change the pronouns. You can put the names of church people in there. As you encounter the truth of who God is in your reading, praise Him for revealing Himself. Give Him that adoration, the A of prayer. Confess. Father, this is who you are. Thank you for showing me who you are, but I'm not like that. Please forgive me. I have not done what you've asked me to do. A-C-T, A-A-C-T, Thanksgiving. Thank him for the mercy he shows to you through Jesus. And then ask him to help you show that to someone else. So you're just reading the Bible and you're saying, oh, I've, thank you God for revealing this truth to me. I see how I have not done that. Please forgive me for not doing that. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to teach others about you. You see how as you read, you can be praying. So don't get discouraged because you're not praying five hours a day. And do be careful sometimes when you're reading biographies, as I often do, of your, your, your heroes who every single one of them seems like all they ever did was wake up in the morning, read the Bible, pray, and write about it. It seems like they didn't have real lives. Well, I don't know if that's true about them, but do I, I do know what's true of me and I know it's true of many of you. We struggle to pray, and that's okay. Just keep trying. Just keep going to the Lord in his word and praying. Amen? Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession. So we'll take a moment here at the close of our service. We'll go to God for another prayer. This time the prayer of confession. So would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be revealed and revered. Open the eyes of us all to see the unmistakable glory of Jesus. God, you have revealed yourself to us today as a father who listens when his people speak.
how wonderful it is to know that you hear us. You always hear us. We do thank you for hearing us. We thank you for allowing us to have your ear. And we know that we have not earned that right. We've been given that right. Nothing in us would qualify us to enter your throne room and ask anything of you. But we look to Jesus. And we thank you for sending him to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness so that we can come boldly before the throne room, humbly because we know we're sinners, and ask of you whatever we wish. Teach us to pray. Teach us how to be a people of prayer. Give us wisdom to set aside time every day to focus on you, to pray. Keep us from feeling like prayer is a task that we need to complete, a burden that we must carry. But help us to see the great privilege that it is that we can pray. Father, for those who are here who struggle to pray, would you help them? Will you encourage them? Will you strengthen them? For those here who are battling temptation and discouragement, fill them with the joy of your Holy Spirit. Enable them to see their need for Jesus and to turn and find that need fulfilled in Him. Enable us to delight in you and all we do. In Jesus' precious name and for Jesus' proper praise. Amen. Well, if you have confessed your sins to God and trust through Jesus, you've been forgiven of your sins, then I can assure you that God has forgiven you of your sins through Jesus. And I can read to you the prayer of the psalmist, for it is true of all of us who are in Christ. Psalm 143, verse 8. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. A good prayer.